Okay, 2 Corinthians, we are in chapter 1. Let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to again gather together with our beloved brothers and sisters in Christ and explore the scriptures, the truths that you've taught us and that you are teaching us that we might grow in grace and knowledge of you, that we might more fully walk in conformity to the image of Jesus Christ, and that we might be equipped to preach the gospel and to minister. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. I was talking about studying Scripture together as part of our Jewish roots. It's interesting. I was looking. Uh, we did our mailing from the um, the new building and in their in their fellowship hall, and I was looking at the art that they have on the walls and. Every one of the paintings, there's somebody studying. Every there's, they have many, many paintings uh, of Jewish art in the synagogue, and every last one of them, there's either a Torah scroll or some other material, and they're studying. And it shows that their value, and that's what they do every evening. They're there studying, 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 studying the scripture, studying Torah, and so that is part of our Jewish roots is to. Uh, realize the value of the sacred, sacred scriptures and devote ourselves to the study of the Word of God. And that's something that they're doing with their Torah. Okay, 2 Corinthians, we are in uh, chapter 1, and we had just started talking about verses, verse 20. We introduced it and talked a little bit about it, and I oh, that's a little hot here. I'm going to go, we'll go back uh, now and start on verse 20 again. For as many as may be the promises of God, in him they are yes, wherefore also by him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Bigger context is that concern, starting with verse 17, let me just read that section here. Therefore I was not vacillating when I intended to do this, was I? In other words, to come to them, or that which I purpose, do I purpose according to the flesh, that with me there should be yes and no, yes, yes and no, no at the same time. So they're, they're accusing Paul of vacillation in not having his act together as far as what he's going to do. But he says this, But as God is faithful, verse 18, our word to you is not yes and no. As I said before, just to get everybody up to speed with the context, as I said before, Paul said, My travel plans may be vacillating, but my preaching is always consistent. All right? Travel plans can change, but the Word of God cannot. That's his point. Verse 19, For the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but is yes in Him. In other words, the Gospel is clear. The Gospel expresses the unchanging promises of God. And Paul had consistently preached that Gospel. And they couldn't, they didn't have to worry that suddenly Paul's going to come with some new message or some new idea because the Gospel's been the same and uh, forever since God has given it. As long as God's given the Gospel, it doesn't change. And that's an important point. Maybe this is our last uh, Sunday in this particular building and it gives me cause to think back over our history. We um, bought this place in the fall of 79 and in 1980 we incorporated as Twin City Fellowship. And so I've been preaching here. I was a part of that original group. I wasn't the senior pastor, but I did preach then. 
Uh, so it's been 27 years. But I think uh, concerning this idea of the preaching of the Word of God, one of the most important things that happened, if I'm thinking back about, about my memories of 27 years of ministry here as this group, Twin City Fellowship, I think one of the most important things that happened during that whole time, and there were several of them, but this one stands out in my mind, happened in 83. I don't know what month it was, but I know it was 1983. And our former senior pastor, Larry Ehrlich, and I had a conversation. And we were trying to decide what to do with this group because we had come out of the charismatic renewal in the 70s. And we were discussing what had happened in the last eight or nine or ten years. Uh, and what had happened was we had one uh, fad after another that had come through. Uh, and there was the inner healing. And so we explored that, and then, well, there were some things wrong with it, so we had to correct it later. Then there was the deliverance ministry. Well, then that wasn't right. We had to correct it later. Then we had the shepherding movement. Well, that wasn't right. We had to correct it later. Then we had, so it, it was like, we listened like five or six things that had come and gone just in eight years that were these fads that came through the church. and. The positive confession or what, all these things had come and gone and then we'd end up having to do damage control later because it turned out it really wasn't bearing fruit and it wasn't doing what, uh, you know, what they promised it would do. And so in 1983, Larry Ehrlich and I sat down and uh, I said to Larry, we can't have this happen anymore. These people have been through. They're, they're never going to be stable in the Lord if we keep changing the message. This thing and then that thing and then this thing and then that thing. We have to do something right now that 10 years from now we will never apologize for. Now, the only thing I could think of was teaching the Bible. <laughs> so the only thing that I know that doesn't change is God and His Word. And so why don't we become a Bible church and just start teaching through the Bible because whatever the case, we won't have to do damage control later because the Bible is not going to harm anybody. It's going to help them. And that was when we became a Bible church uh, and changed directions in 1983. Then, so that was yes and no. Yeah, see, that's how it applies to what we're talking about. Before, we had a yes and no and no and yes. From the pulpit. The yes was the shepherding movement. You gotta have a shepherd to tell you how to live your life. And then two years later, the no was, that wasn't from God. <laughs> Don't listen to the shepherding movement anymore. We're gonna do something else. So it was this vacillation where when we in the 83 became a Bible church and said so we're just gonna teach the Word of God verse by verse by verse, the yes and no went away and we just have the Word of God that doesn't change. And here's what happened. A lot of these movements were designed to help people get over problems in their lives. But they never really delivered. In other words, people didn't get over their problems. And yesterday, Brian Flynn and I were doing radio. We're doing a, a series of radio shows based on his book. And Brian was sharing his testimony on the radio about what his life was like in a new age. And he was sharing, right, Brian, that the same, that's the way it was in a new age because they always had to have some new, do you want to bring the mic back to, to Brian? Uh, maybe you could give just a little brief story about what it was like where it, it, there was always a vacillation because uh, he'd try one thing and it would have this great experience and then a year later he had to have a new experience. So go ahead and share your story, Brian. 
Well, uh, when I was in the New Age, there's always some new fad that comes along. Uh, you know, there was the positive feeling movement or the human potential movement where deep inside you there is a way of becoming better and more successful. And I followed Tony Robbins' philosophy for a while. And then Tony Robbins, of course, you hardly hear about him anymore. Isn't that interesting? You know, he made his millions, he went away. But really it was because we moved on to something else. And the latest thing now is, is more of a, of a, a spiritual movement in which I can improve myself. If I meditate in a certain way, act a certain way, I will have higher consciousness. And then through that higher consciousness, I will become more like God and have the power of God to do whatever I want. Now, would you say then that the reason they keep coming up with new twists and new programs or new spiritual processes is because the old one really doesn't deliver the goods? That's exactly it. There was a woman on Oprah Winfrey who talked about, had to really admit, now she was a teacher of some of these programs, and she goes, she was very frustrated because a lot of her devotees would come up to her later and go, you know, I've been, I, I've been through all these different teaching modalities and these, these meditative processes and all these different things, but the problems I have still haven't gone away. And it's like, well, what they're admitting is, is that last week's trend was a failure, and they're on to the next new one, and the next new one, but never really finding the true answer. And that's because we are sinful creatures, and we need a savior, and the <laughs> man-made method is going to change. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> yeah, now... Okay, uh, it's Keith over here. Well, when, when, so when Brian was sharing that and I was interviewing him on the radio, this wasn't live, it's, it's in my computer here, I was thinking it was almost like what we were doing in the 70s with all these fads coming through the church. They'd come into the church and they'd promise uh, glorious things that you're not going to just be an ordinary Christian, you're going to be a, a either you're a wealthy Christian or a happy Christian or a powerful Christian or uh, a, a Problem free or pain free Christian, and when they didn't deliver, somebody would come through with a new version, and it was almost like what's going on in the new age that Brian was sharing. And uh, so we talked on the radio about that and say, really, our message shouldn't be vacillating. We have the gospel, and it's going to be the same forever. And Christians shouldn't be in under teaching that makes them unstable because the teaching keeps changing. Yes. I think a lot of our, the history of the church is a history of refugees coming out from one of those things or another, whether it's the older Roman Catholic version or it's the new charismatic version. I was a part of the, the, the ministry that spawned this. Only I was a kid. I, I, my parents were just kind of leading us there. I didn't have a whole lot of choice. You actually chose to get in. Yeah, I got more guilty. Huh? <laughs> but uh, when I came back here afterwards... Uh, one of the first things I did is went back to the CIC archives and started reading CIC. And if you go on the web and look at the CIC and start reading at the beginning, towards the end, you'll see a whole tone shift where the beginning ones are, this is a scam, and this is a scam, and this is a scam too, and this is a scam, and then a lot of it's just documenting the scams that we were uh, gone through. And I think about a third of the way through or you know, Something like that, the gospel starts becoming stronger and stronger. It's not just that this is a scam, but here's the truth, 
And, and there's a focus that shifts as you read through them, that the gospel becomes more preeminent. And the scams are just scams because they're not the gospel. They're not the gospel or they're attacks on the gospel. I, yeah, and so just to do a little nostalgia as we're moving uh, to a new phase here, the 83 was a key time in my mind because then we became a Bible church. And, and I, as soon as we started teaching through the Bible, we didn't end up having to apologize later because the Bible never changes. And then in 86 was another key um, time in our history. In 86 was when we had Dave Hunt come and speak on the seduction of Christianity. And uh, when we became a Bible church, it didn't bother our friends because they didn't really notice anything. We were teaching the Bible. That didn't, was no threat. But when we brought Dave Hunt in and we started actually correcting air publicly, then we were, yeah, we, we were the, the devil in the Twin Cities, frankly. We lost all of our former friends that were in churches. Uh, I used to speak... Uh, in many different churches in the 80s, and I used to have to keep track of the honorariums for taxes. And it was so many, you know, it was a couple thousand a year or something like that. It wasn't a big deal, but it was something. In 86, it went to zero. It stayed that way for year after year after year. There was not one person in the Twin Cities that we knew that would trust me in their church. And because we had divided the body of Christ, they claimed, by by correcting error, by having a seminar on the seduction of Christianity. Another thing that happened in 86 was that when I, that's when I started understanding the gospel. I was teaching verse by verse through Romans, and I found out my theology was bad. Okay? You were anti-stuff beforehand, and then you started becoming pro. Yeah, I became more gospel-centric in 86 because I realized, teaching through Romans, that what I had been taught in Bible college was, was faulty theology. It was based on human ability rather than God's grace. And so that was a big thing for me because then the Bible made sense. I mean, I, I was committed to teaching verse by verse through it, but you can't do that for too many years before it changes your theology. Okay, So after three years of teaching through the Bible, I go, I've been wrong. I've got to change my theology. And I started teaching the doctrines of grace uh, and, and the grace of God and salvation rather than human ability. And, I, and then I realized that really believing in human ability is what creates these fads. Because you think there's some perfectibility in man that if you can just tap into it, you can get people to better themselves. And once you realize that that's not even true, that God changes lives by his gracious means, then all that makes sense is to provide the means for the people and God will change them. I don't have to engineer revival or engineer a personal change in people's lives. I just need to give them the spiritual food that God ordained that he'll do it. And and so I thank God for eighty three and eighty six and then since then it's just trying to be faithful. Yes, yeah. One of the seductive things about and, and I, I would even go further and say call people things about all of these other fads is that some aspects of those other fads do in fact work. And you know, people that have emails that you receive that you told us about yeah, but it worked for me. So that's that's correct. Because <laughs> Sometimes it seems to work. Yeah. To some degree it works, but what did it work to? What what path did it put you on? Did it put you in the path to eternity, salvation, or did it just put you in some kind of path that says 
oh, this works, let's go find something else. And that's why the trends continue. You'll find the same people going to the same, to what's the next and the latest and the greatest. They'll be the same people yeah. going because something worked, and they're going to find a little bit more. And you'll see people all flocking to one place because somebody has the, uh, the latest thing going. Yeah, the anointing falls over here. Somebody's got to run over there. And where the word of God should be taught everywhere. So now, that's pertinent to what we're talking to, because back in 2 Corinthians 1.19, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me and uh, Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but yes and him. So if you become a gospel preacher like Paul was, you won't have an inconsistent message. It's always going to be the same clear truth of the gospel and it's not going to vacillate and it's not going to create instability in the people that hear it. It's going to do the opposite. It's going to give people a firm foundation to stand on that's not the shaky ground. It's the solid rock. Remember, I think of the hymn. Uh, standing on the solid rock, I stand. Everything else is shaky ground. However, that goes... Is that What's the... Blessed Assurance? What am I thinking of? On Christ's solid rock I stand. That's it. <laughs> there you go. All other ground is sinking sand. All right. I knew there was a song to that one. All right. Now that brings us to verse 20. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Here it is. For as many may be the promises of God, in Him they are yes, wherefore also by Him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Now, I mentioned last week as we were talking about this, that this amen means that uh, as the truth of God's promises in Christ are proclaimed by the preachers, Paul and the other apostles in this case, or whoever it may be, those who are truly the Lord's sheep, the redeemed of the Lord, they will be saying, whether verbally or internally, externally or internally, they will be saying their amen, which means surely. In other words, they say amen to the promises of God, meaning agreement, affirmation, and a corporate confession of these promises. So together as the people of God, we are saying amen to the gospel. That's what we confess, that's what we believe, and we know that this gospel will not change. And that is through the gospel that Paul preached, their response was faith and confession. Now, the promises of God find their affirmation in Christ. And these promises, I believe that, as I mentioned last week, that Paul has in mind, would be all of the Messianic promises in the Old Testament. I'm going to preach on Exodus 2 this morning, and we'll see the uh, at the very end of that uh, uh, chapter of Exodus 2, God it says, God looked upon the people, and he remembered his, his covenant, with, he remembered Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He remembered his promises. Now, it's not that God forgets things and then remembers them, uh, but it's an anthropomorphism. And uh, what it means is that when God sees his people in dire straits, God remembers the promises that he made to them. And for us, he remembers that Jesus Christ died for our sins and that we're his flock. Um Okay, where are we? At? Robert, you got the mic. You get to start. Uh, Acts three twenty-five and twenty-six, and then Pauline, if you could look up Acts thirteen thirty-two to thirty-nine, and Mary, Ephesians one twelve through fourteen, and Lois, Revelation three fourteen. And I got a quote. 
Okay, so as soon as you're ready. Acts 3, 25 and 26. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. So that was preached to the Jewish people by, I believe by Peter, was it? In the context there? Yeah, so he, Peter, when he preached to his Jewish brethren, reminded them of the promises of God that were given in, in Genesis 12 and verse 3. And then he pointed out that Messiah came to fulfill the promise. And the first thing he was going to do was turn his own people from their sin. And that was the apostolic message. And then uh, the next one was Acts 13, starting with verse 32. And we declare to you glad tidings. That promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, and that he has raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus. I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, You will not allow your Holy One to seek corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers, and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Well, so that was an example of preaching in the book of Acts and how they preached Christ out of the Old Testament. Did you, did you notice how... Uh, is that Paul in Acts 13 there that made that speech? I, was it? Was it Paul or somebody else? Okay, yeah, I thought it was Paul. Okay, so Paul there was preaching Christ out of the Old Testament. So there's a little snippet that shows how they did that. And he and he went and he used a scripture that says that uh, God would not allow His Holy One to undergo corruption. And they, Paul would claim that that couldn't apply to David because David's, as Peter preached in Acts 2, David's tomb is still with us. We know he went underwent corruption. Now, since Jesus was raised on the third day, the Jews would accept that, that he didn't undergo corruption. Okay? So having been raised on the third day, Jesus is the fulfillment of that Prophecy. So the promises of God are fulfilled in Christ according to the apostolic preaching. I can't wait till we get to Acts, but it's going to take a few years because <laughs> I'm preaching Luke Acts. What I'm considering, however, and I'm open to feedback on this idea, I'm soon to be done with Second Thessalonians. And uh, even though this will make my job harder, I'm thinking about just going and preaching two Sundays on Luke Acts and then one in the Old Testament. Uh, so I can get through Luke Acts quicker. Uh, and I've preached through most of the epistles already in my lifetime. And the other the other thing is the epistles are the easy thing. Okay, So I mean, the easiest Sunday is when I preach from the epistles. Because it's straight doctrine, right? It's all, all the work's already done. When you're preaching Old Testament or narrative, you have to work harder. The doctrines are in there, but you have to work harder to bring them out. But I think it's a good process. And MacArthur's been preaching since like 97 in Luke. So, I'm going even faster than he does, okay? 
So I would like to, within a reasonable number of years, get through Luke-Acts, and I think we can have all the doctrine we need right out of there, but then go back into Exodus. So that's my plan at the moment. And then I'll have Ryan preaching from an epistle, so you'll still get that. So. He gets the easy job. Yeah, yeah. Don't, Ryan may not agree with me that he has the easy job. <laughs> he has plenty of tough passages to deal with too in, in Ephesians. Okay, the next passage we were going to read was Ephesians one twelve through fourteen. Okay. The middle of a sentence in twelve. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. In order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promise, Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those for God's possession, to the praise of His glory. Yes, that uh, we heard the the gospel, we b- believed it, and we're sealed with the Holy Spirit, so that w- the seal would be it has several functions in in the ancient world. One of them was a sign of authenticity that this is the real thing, and the other thing was it was a, a, a proof that there that uh, it was a protection against tampering. Okay, so if you if you put like a, a cord around something and put lead in it and they'd have an imprint on a signet ring, you know, put an imprint, then you, could, you couldn't get that apart without breaking the seal and people know that it had been tampered with. So the idea there was that, that we're sealed and it means that God's going to preserve us in the faith and keep us until the, to the, till the resurrection. And so that we're His and no one will snatch us out of His hand. So that gives us security in Christ because of the great promises of God. So that would be another example of the promises of God. In Him they are yes, and to Him is our amen. So, Lois, you have uh, Revelation 3.14. And unto the angel of the church of Laodicea write, These things saith the Lord, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. The faithful and true witness. That's the Lord Himself is the faithful and true witness. Now here, I'm going to read a little from my commentary and then we'll go on to another verse. Um, it says, this is a Dr. Martin. Amen is a transliteration of the Hebrew word, Amen. Okay? <laughs> it's like hallelujah. Okay? Amen is the word Amen from the Hebrew, which means surely. And it was a community response found in the Old Testament in which the congregation spoke their assent to a curse, Deuteronomy 27, 15, and 16, or individuals, uh, Numbers 5, 5, and in, in, in Jer- Jeremiah 11, 5. Remember when they had to go between those two mountains when they were going into the promised land? And they had the, the blessings spoken from the one, what was the Mount Ebal and Gerizim? Isn't it? Ebal and Gerizim? Bible quiz! <laughs> <laughs> I think it's evil and garrison. And the blessings were on one and the curses were on the other out of Deuteronomy. And they had to actually read them. Say, cursed is he who... And then the people were down between the two and they said, Amen. So they were saying, we agree that if we do, if we rebel against the covenant that we're cursed, 
And we believe it and we know it because that's the way it is. And then they would give the promises. Blessed is he who... And then the people would say, Amen. And so it was a, it was an expression of agreement with the terms of the covenant. So when we say Amen to the gospel, we're agreeing that that is indeed the terms of the covenant and in Christ is our Amen. And the good thing about it is we're not saying Amen to I'm going to be good enough to keep the covenant. We're saying amen that the the guarantor of the covenant is Christ and His blood and I know that He's powerful enough to keep me. <laughs> there you go. Amen. It's appropriate. Alright, so back to this. Okay, so they ascend to a curse or to the praise of God. And then he gives some lists, some verses like Nehemiah 8 and verse 6. Um in his letters, Paul placed an amen after benedictions. Romans 15.33, 16.27, 1 Corinthians 16.24, and other passages. And expressions of praise, Romans 1.25, and others. We can assume that the Corinthian congregation spoke it as a response to prayer and thanksgiving in their corporate worship. But Paul interprets it to be their affirmation of faith that God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ. Their chorus of amens in worship proclaims God's faithfulness in making salvation possible for them through Christ. Proclaiming God's faithfulness in worship brings glory to God, the very goal of human existence. So that is what Christian corporate worship should be. The proclamation of the, of the gospel, the, the, Praising of God, who's given the gospel, and a chorus of amens that gives affirmation that these things are true and that we're here to give glory to God. So that's what amen is all about. One Corinthians, two Corinthians, one twenty-one says here: Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and anointed us is. God. Okay, the first, uh, this establishes us is a present, uh, participle. Present participle, I believe it's present aorist participle. And then we have another aorist participle in, uh, anointed. And so, because these are in the aorist, they probably are speaking about what God did through the gospel or what happened when they were converted. So those who are converted are established and anointed. Now the word established in in the Greek can have a legal connotation and it might very well have that here. I, I did a fairly lengthy word study on this uh, with my computer software and dug around looking at resources about that word that's uh, translated establish, and it could also be translated make us stand firm, or if it's a legal nuance, it means to confirm the validity of something or to guarantee or to serve as a legally valid witness. And some of the scholars believe that it does have the, indeed have that legal connotation in this particular passage. So therefore, uh, God provides through in Christ a legally valid witness of our salvation. So that when the accuser of the brethren accuses us day and night before God would uh, 
question the validity, we have a guarantee or a legally valid witness that assures us that these things are true, that we are gods and that we're in Christ, and nothing can change that reality because it's a legal justification. Notice the passage that Pauline read earlier in Acts uh, 13. I noticed Paul was preaching to his Jewish brothers about justification. That it was through Christ that we're justified in all these things. Not through works of the law, but through Christ. So, justification is forensic. Have you ever heard the term forensic justification? What is forensic? What does that word mean? Yeah, usually it's the study of legal. Anything that would be legal or within a legal realm. So, legal justification. And... The, the Council of Trent, the Roman Catholic Church, declared forensic justification to be legal fiction. Right? If you read the canons on justification from the Council of Trent, they say that anybody who says that they're justified by faith legally is proclaiming legal fiction and let them be anathema. Now, what, what is the, what is the Roman Catholic Church claiming? They're claiming that God will never declare a single person to be just until that person actually is just in totality and in reality. In other words, if you are not perfectly just, you're damned. Or you go to purgatory until you get more just. All right. So, uh, legally, <laughs> legally, legally just. So, the doctrine of the Reformation was that we have the imputed righteousness of Christ. So our legal justification, the validity of our legal standing before God in God's courtroom, is that Jesus Christ died for sins, the just for the unjust. I was looking at that verse the other day, and I was trying to wonder, I was thinking, how can anybody deny the substitutionary atonement? I just finished reading a book that denies it. Uh, the Secret Message of Jesus, Brian McLaren. He denies the substitutionary atonement. He, he, he admits that at one time he believed it, but he was just naive back then. Now there's no substitutionary atonement. And, and, they, and in fact, another uh, emergent guy from um, the UK said that the idea of Jesus being punished for our sins is bad advertising for God. You know, why would God do something like that? So now we know, now it's just not just the Roman Catholic Church attacking the doctrine of justification by faith, it's the emergent church attacking the doctrine of justification by faith. Now, why do they call it legal fiction? Because we have to have our own just person. We have to be perfectly just, perfectly right, perfectly obedient before God will declare us just. And the, the Reformation doctrine was that we are justified in Christ and that Christ's perfect obedience to the law and Christ's penal sacrifice where he pays the penalty for our disobedience to the law was accepted by the Father as uh, valid on behalf of his people whom he's justifying. All right? So that's legal or forensic justification that's based on the imputed righteousness of Christ. Now, I was contemplating the verse, uh, Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. 
How can you read that verse and not see a substitutionary atonement? It's, it's not complicated. You don't have to, it's not like you have to do some, uh, <coughs> excuse me, some fancy foot dance, you know, to find it in there. It just says it right on the surface. Yes? And, and on the other side, I just heard a sermon by a guy in town. It says we're supposed to take up our cross and uh, follow Jesus, and then we continue to die the innocent for the guilty. We do? So the whole concept there is perverted on the other side, where we're not... There is no other innocent except Christ, but the concept they're doing is that uh, we die for the, the guilty in our lives. It's crazy. Unbelievable. Well, we got to get the gospel right, or we don't have a whole lot going for us. Let's look at a little bigger context of these um, uh, aorist participles. There's, there's um, He anointed us, verse 21. Verse 22, sealed us, same construction in the Greek, and verse 22, gave us the Spirit. Again, another aorist participle. So these would be things that are true at a point in time when people are converted. That's when this happens. When we're converted, we're anointed, we're sealed, and we're given the Holy Spirit. Alright? Now, these things are true for all Christians. One of the serious false teachings that uh, comes into, it's always been around, most of these things aren't new, they've been around for the whole history of the church, but the, this any kind of an elitist version of, or pietistic version of Christianity, it, it's just such a, a subtle, maybe not so subtle attack on the gospel. And I've read so many versions of these lately, and they sound so good, they sound so wonderful. And, uh, for example, uh, in, in the mysticism, and uh, I, I use the term pietism, the, uh, the implication is that if you are doing these things, we just did a radio show, radio show also, Dick and I did a radio show on Richard Foster's book, The Spirit of the Disciplines. And that's pietism through and through. And the idea is that if you do all these things beyond what even Christ asks anybody to do, you're just going to be a higher order Christian. And that you're going to separate yourself from all the ordinary Christians. And that's the very thing that inspired monasticism. This, the idea of these works of super irrigation, they're called in, in Rome. And that they would say, well, yeah, we know that Christ didn't require people to take an oath of chastity because marriage was ordained by God. But those that do are more pious and more pleasing to God than the ones that don't. So the monks will go join a monastery and take a, a, a vow of chastity, and now they're a higher order Christian. They have things going for them that the rest of us ordinary people don't have. And then they take an oath of poverty. And so that's another higher, it's not required by the gospel, but, it, but that makes them better Christians. Well, you get the same flavor coming into Protestantism when you have people... Uh, Keith and I were looking at this uh, group that's having revival meetings for like three months without end. Sixty nights running, and the real Christians go to every one of them. Yeah, and and <laughs> yeah, the, the, so if you go to all sixty of those revival meetings, then you're a much better Christian than just ordinary ones. And the whole thing is based on this pietism. 
We're going to be more zealous for God, and we're going to have more anointing of the Spirit, and we're going to go. They had a school of what? The school of the Spirit, where you learn how to find out the deep things of God that aren't revealed in the Bible. And it seems so wonderful. But frankly, can you do this? Can you make yourself a better Christian by going to a meeting for 60 straight nights? He, he claims in. If you look on the website, what's actually claimed is that you continue. The flesh doesn't like to go to these meetings. So that if you continue to go to these meetings, the flesh finally comes under submission and the spirit is strengthened by going to meetings night after night. It's not just like a set of 60. They're continuing. They've just done the 60 in a row so far. Okay, I get it. Well, I'll tell you what. The, the best uh, safeguard against this sort of pietistic hyper-spirituality that claims that if we do some... Uh, huge self-sacrificing work that's not even required by the gospel, that we will be a higher order Christian with more anointing. That's not what it says here. This is, this is making all Christians on the same status. The passage we're reading says, He establishes us in Christ. He anoints us. He seals us. And He gave us the Spirit. And this is true. It isn't, Paul isn't saying the higher order Christians are really sealed. Or the higher order Christians are really anointed. And then you're just ordinary ones are sort of bumbling around and don't quite get it. Um, and that has got to be resisted. And it has so infected our movement. And I think it's part of what tracks people to mysticism. Because they think you're going to have a higher order experience. Uh, by the way, Brian, good response to that guy. <laughs> a guy emailed Brian uh, rebuking him for correcting uh, contemplative prayer and said, and said in the email, well, it says right in the Bible, be still and know that I am God. <laughs> and so Brian wrote him back and said, you can't find a Bible scholar anywhere in the world that can affirm that that is a valid application or meaning of that passage. And and then quoted Father Keating to him and said, there, you're going to tell me this is from God? So that's what's being offered is a higher order experience. Paul is saying that the promises of God are in Christ, that we as Christians, whoever may be the truly converted ones, whoever is saved by grace, whoever they may be, whether they look poor or rich, whether they're of high status or low status, whether they struggle mightily in their Christian walk or whether they've been uh, a Christian for many years and seem to everybody around them to be very wonderful, mature Christians, whatever those distinctives may be, Paul is putting us all together in Christ with the same status. Everybody has the same status as established, legally, anointed, by God, sealed, that means we're the genuine Christians, and that all Christians, this is true of everybody, whoever they may be, and given the Spirit. And it isn't some second order experience. Okay. In Re- Revelation 7, when you get to the end, you have only the people who are sealed by God, and you have the people that are marked by the beast. You don't have some levels between, you only have all the Christians are sealed in Revelation 7 1. 7-3, and all the Antichrist followers are marked. Yeah, so they're all sealed in one re- one regard or the other. Yeah, you're either yeah, you're either sealed by God or sealed by Antichrist. 
In either case, your status isn't going to change. <laughs> if you're marked by Antichrist, that's it. So, I don't know whether... The, I, You know, the pre-trib rapture may be really the truth, um, but if it isn't, whatever happens, don't take that mark of the beast. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes? It seems to me that in, in this whole section of scriptures, one of the two most important words are the two words, in Christ. And I can't think of two more glorious words in all of scripture. Amen. Those two words are in Christ. And all of this is evidence of how can you be a better Christian if you are in Christ? In other words, all of these things that are promised, that are yes and amen, are all in yeah, Christ. Right. If I only could grasp even with my finite mind what that really meant, it's changed me so far, but it, it's a word that those two words will continue to change us as we realize more and more yeah. and read his word and sit under the gospel, those two words, in Christ how yes, they are. And, and it all starts, I, I think there's a lot of, probably more than we'll know until eternity, there's a, like, like you're saying, there's a lot of nuances to that, and it's a broad idea, but it all starts with the legal justification. That's the groundwork, the, the, the bottom line bedrock that's more important than anything else is justification by faith in our legal status in Christ. Because that's, if you have the legal status, then you're adopted into the family. Right? Now, you may adopt a child that still has problems. Does anybody have kids that have problems? <laughs> I know my mother does. <laughs> but, but they're your kids. And you're going to care for them. And so, we're the Lord's. And we have problems that doesn't cancel our status. He's committed to our sanctification. He'll stick with us. He'll discipline us as sons and daughters. He'll do what he has to do because we're his. So he established us with you in Christ. So Paul is saying they are one with Paul because Paul and them are both in Christ. They're both recipients of these promises that are in Christ. Yay and amen. They are not yes and no, but yes, yes. They are affirmed by God who keeps his promises, and God cannot lie. And so, uh, that is why they have this unity. I notice that this word established uh, in the, from the Greek is also used, according to my notes, in Hebrews 2, 2 through 4. So, um, Carla, could you look up Hebrews 2, 2 through 4? Verse 3 uses the same word for established, which I said can be a legal term for guaranteeing the validity of legal status or as a valid witness. Hebrews 2, 2 through 4. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard it. God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. Okay, so in verse 3, it says, was confirmed. Is that word confirmed in verse 3? Yeah. Yeah, the word confirmed is the same word translated established us in 2 Corinthians one twenty one. It's translated confirmed. In Hebrews 2, 3. So the apostles served as legal witnesses 
uh, that this was indeed God's word that was spoken when they heard the gospel. So when the gospel was proclaimed, the apostles themselves, the eyewitnesses, confirmed these words, and then God gave further evidence through the signs and wonders that he did, confirming what? Their gospel message. Signs signify, and in the Bible, signs signify that Jesus really is the Messiah. These weren't miracles uh, done so that the people doing the miracles could get a name for themselves and take up a big offering. The miracles were done to confirm the word, and the word was preached was the gospel itself. Okay, so he confirms this as a valid legal witness established. That's what that word in the Greek means, in Christ, and anointed us. Another important concept. Now here, all of these participles are true for the Christians, whoever really Christians are, like I said. So anointed is true of all Christians. Now, you hear, I think a lot of people don't understand that. Uh, you see advertisements of so-and-so is the anointed man of God. Implication, everybody else isn't. Okay? Or this guy has some special status, greater anointing. Now, I wrote an article about that. was one of the articles we were talking early on in 92, I think, when I started writing CIC. I wrote an article about the anointing in the Christian. And pointed out that in this passage here, and it's, and we'll look up uh, the passage in 1 John 2, uh, that the anointing is true of all Christians. The only specially anointed one in the Bible is Messiah. It says in Hebrews that he was anointed with oil of joy above his brother. Yes, Carla. Um, I just have a question. There, there are a lot of verses um, in the New Testament that talk about like Peter... Filled with the Holy Spirit or stuff and filled with the Holy Spirit. So it's like there's some implication that at moments of time they were somehow more filled. Well, you know, Ephesians says be filled with the Spirit. Okay, so all Christians have the Holy Spirit, but there's an ongoing work of the Spirit. And, and I, you know why I believe that's in Acts? After I did my, well, I know you did a long study on that, didn't you, Carla? On the yeah, Holy Spirit? And I, I just never got a clear answer on that. You didn't get an answer? Well, I'll tell you what, I, I see it as a narrative thing that ties Luke-Acts together. And that's why I believe that it's emphasized in Luke-Acts. If you look in early in Luke, it says the Holy Spirit came upon Zacharias. And what happened was these words came out of his mouth about messianic salvation. Here's what, and it was what God is going to do. And then the Holy Spirit comes upon Mary, and out of her mouth comes words about messianic salvation. The Holy Spirit comes upon Simeon, and out of his mouth comes words about messianic salvation. In Acts 2, or Acts 1, Jesus says, after you receive the Holy Spirit, you shall be my witnesses. Right? Uh, then, excuse me, whoops, I went in a circle and 